Hello and welcome to episode number 21 of Earth Repair Radio. We know how to do the world restoration and do the climate stabilization and to sequester the carbon and to create water retentive landscapes and to get a world of abundance and increase biodiversity. If there's anybody out there, any green politicians listening to this, you should get yourself over to the Global Earth Repair Conference. We can heal this planet Earth. I know we can. I'm sure we can. Wah, ooh, wah, ooh, wah, wah, wah. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Milson, and today we've got a great guest. It's Michael Skeeter-Polarski, who is the founder of the Friends of the Trees Society. Michael Polarski is a lifelong student of plants and earth repair and is hosting the upcoming Global Earth Repair Conference. So we're going to talk quite a bit about that upcoming conference, May 2nd through 5th, throughout the interview here in Port Townsend, Washington, 2019. I want to apologize in advance. We mispronounced, both of us mispronounced Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's name. So sorry about that. So without further ado... Here is the interview with Michael Skeeter-Polarski. Good morning, Skeeter. How are you doing? Good morning, Andrew. I'm doing good. Nice to uh, see you and hear you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Um, So thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me this morning. I know you're up to so many exciting things that I'd really like to hear about, and I'm sure that all the listeners are going to be um, fascinated and hopefully want to come and attend the Global Earth Repair Conference that you are putting on coming up this spring. Yes. So, yeah. So um, why don't you start by telling a little bit about your history? I mean, you've done so many different things to support yourself on the path of permaculture and, you know, creating your regenerative livelihood all these years. You know, what what is the story that has brought you um, to this point? Well, before I answer that, Andrew, I just want to thank you for getting me on the interview. And when I saw that you put out the Earth Repair Radio, I just knew we had to have you at the conference. Mm -hmm. And so all of us Earth Repair brothers and sisters, uh, it's great to uh, be here on the show. So my history, of course, is a long one because I'm 70 years old now. But I can harken back to those early days, and you particularly wanted to ask about uh, my career rather than my childhood. So on the career path, I would say that when I was 20 years old, I um, made a vow that I would serve the people of the world. And so I've been on, I've stuck with that for the last 50 years. And then in 1978, uh, inspired by Richard St. Barb Baker, I started Friends of the Tree Society with the goal to double the world's forest cover or or you know follow in his footsteps. That's what he was aiming to do. And consequently, I dropped out of society quite a bit compared to nowadays. And I went 15 years without paying any rent, having a car, a phone, insurance, um, a family, and all those things that people... Uh, wait, wait, no, no cell phone? No cell phone. No internet? No, no, no cell phones or internet available. Right. <laughs> so, uh, uh, 
So I lived very, very cheaply. I worked about two months of the year picking fruit or planting trees on the mountain slopes to make money. And the rest of the time, I I organized and I created my own life. So I was actively on my career organizing things, uh, putting out pamph- you know, little newsletters. And I was working for the Back to the Landers in those days. I moved back to the land in 1972. And so I spent all those years growing my own food, building my own houses, reconverting barns and chicken coops, what have you, into dwelling spaces hitchhiked all over the Northwest and put on, started putting on these series of gatherings. In 1982, I discovered permaculture, 81, I discovered it, took my first course in 82, and it changed my life forever, as it does for many people who take permaculture design courses. If it doesn't change your life forever, it wasn't a very good course, I would add. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, started teaching permaculture courses in 1988. That was my first one. And I, it was the first course caught in, taught in Canada. No one else had taught in Canada yet. And I ended up teaching four courses in Canada, including the first course in the maritime provinces. Mm-hmm. So for a while, and I, and just, a, I for a while, permaculture design courses were part of my income. They're not so much these days. But I taught only 40 courses. Back then, when I started, I was uh, it was an impressive number. But these days, uh, more and more people are, are getting into the 40, 50. Uh, a, a number of people have broken the 100 permaculture design courses taught now. Uh, so... In the early days, it was, you know, the first was Bill Mollison, Max Lindiger, Robin Francis, and now there's been uh, lately uh, quite a, a number of other people. Who is the where, who, where are you? Where are you at, Andrew? You keeping track? Um, you know, I haven't counted for a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Somewhere, somewhere up there in the like 40, 50 or something. I'm not totally sure. I'm curious, who taught your? Did you take a permaculture course with Bill Mollison in '82? Uh, he was there for three days. Mainly, it was taught by Andrew Jeeves, the illustrator for the for the Mollison work. Oh, nice! Oh, nice! Yeah, it was it was very uh, very big thing. Uh, and then I took a full design course with Bill Mollison uh, in '86, the first permaculture drylands course. He had just made the curriculum. It was totally fabulous. He was like spot on kind of I don't know I would say maybe at the height of his career he was just so brilliant he knew so multidisciplinary and so funny and so I got to uh be with Bill for a two-week course specifically on dry lands and he was he was really one of the world experts at the time and had been identified as as such where was that located that was in eastern Washington in the dry you know in the drier part of eastern Washington huh um, yeah, so the permaculture has been a big part of the career, but then uh, to fast forward a bit, 24 years ago, I was looking for more, some income at, because by then I had a family and I decided to start wild crafting medicinal herbs as an income. And I started out just without knowing too much of a few tools 
and a desire. And I started uh, getting a few clients and gradually built the business up. So now that uh, the herb business is my main uh, source of income. So I'm, I'm a permaculture farmer mm-hmm. and a wild crafter. So I have a small farm. I'm currently running a half acre of intensive planting and an agroforestry system. And I do a, a fair amount of wild crafting and that, that pays a lot of my bills. And so I have a actual right livelihood based on physical production. And so I always, I really like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's great. I, I enjoy the teaching. I enjoy the writing, but I really enjoy just the, the hands-on productivity. And, and we could use a lot more permaculture farmers out there. There's a lot of permaculture teachers, permaculture writers, permaculture gardeners, and just, and every one of them has a great career. Get, don't get me wrong. But we need more permaculture farmers that actually are are producing and showing how to how to apply permaculture in that way. There, there's there's thousands of us, mind you, but we could use maybe some hundreds of thousands or millions, actually millions, tens of millions. Okay, so the, that was that was just a little bit about about a very little bit about my career um, and. I guess maybe to lead into another topic, one of the thing, other things I've done is put on events. I've now had about 103 major events that I've put on. I, I counted them the other day because I knew I was getting close to 100. And uh, so these have ranged from permaculture, sustainable agriculture, ethnobotany, uh, a lot on medicinal herbs. And, and now here I am putting on a – find myself with a global earth repair conference. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So um, what do you feel is the need for the global earth repair conference? I mean, you know, what what is the situation on the planet from your perspective, from your eyes, that has brought you to this – um, creating this major event and, and what that represents? Well, to be, I would say, uh, to, to forward it, that I'm optimistic and I'm pessimistic at the same time. I, I consider the situation to be quite dire. Ecosystems are unraveling around the world at an increasing rate. The, the numbers of insects in some Germany reports a 75% reduction in insects, you know, in the not, you know, very long period of time. Some, there, a lot of, there's less and less birds, insects, pollinators, um, and a lot of ecosystems are seeing crashes of populations. It's, un, I, I saw the st- statistics the other day that horrified me, uh, that, that the biomass on the planet of, of, Animal biomass on the planet, 5% was wild animals, 35% or something like that was humans, and and 60% were livestock, human livestock. And so if we – and that, that was just horrifying to think that we've pushed wild animals to only 5% of the animal biomass or maybe that's mammal uh, biomass on the planet. And so that was a big cause for concern. And the total productivity of the planet has really been going down steadily for 
millennia, actually, but especially the last couple of centuries of the Industrial Revolution. It's, so we have to turn. And so obviously we're 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 in for a really tough ride here as things become more unraveling, because even if we start with the big earth repair push right away, it's going to still take some years for it to catch up. So there's unraveling going on even as we start gaining ground. We need to turn around the situation. We've reached a, a really low point. Uh, I think we're at down to 50% of the Earth's biomass or slightly above that 50-55% of the Earth's biomass as at, the, at when, it, when it was at its height at the early interglacial. Uh, most of that due to mankind, so or humankind. So we're we're at a very low ebb, and if we don't turn it around, you know, it will be hell to pay, as they say. So the 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 uh, another really sad thing for me is the indigenous people of the world uh, and their situation. Uh, almost all of them are, you might say, under siege or under atta- under attack. In various forms, culturally, sometimes militarily, uh, they're subject to racism and repression. Almost in almost every country of the world, the indigenous peoples are the bottom of the totem pole, and it's just uh, so sad for me to see that because their indigenous wisdom, what there is, you know, is part of what can save us. And so I'm really I'm I'm sad for that. I I remember I remember reading about oh maybe 15 20 years ago maybe it was 20 years ago that there were 500 million indigenous people or traditional you know people left uh, you know, we say indigenous I think is the term they used left on the planet and the latest statistic is 370 uh, million so there you know, the the numbers are actually dropping while the population numbers of the planet are increasing very rapidly that's that's uh yeah but yes the numbers are increasing but they're relative numbers not only percentage point but their relative numbers are they're not relative but their actual numbers are going down yeah. so it's uh so in other words they're becoming a smaller and smaller percent of the world's population 370 out of 7 billion you could do the math um so five percent six percent and and any anyway, rate, so that's concerning too, because we're and we're not only le- losing. I just saw a video. I, I'm sorry to belabor some of these points, but I'm, I guess we're trying to get real. Yeah. I saw a video the other day of a person running around Iran. Uh, Iran. He was he was running around doing shows of what Iran is really like. He was from the West. He wasn't from the U.S., but he was just running around doing all these videos and one of them he 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 said oh i'm in this village it's this quaint little village and and he's running around taking all these shots of these um earthen and brick buildings and he says and it looks like there's nobody here like nobody's around and eventually oh i saw some more tourists but there's basically a, a pretty much almost abandoned rural village and that's happening around the world, traditional villages being abandoned and boarded up because the people are leaving for the cities or whatever, for whatever reasons, the, the, a lot of the traditional villages are also being depopulated yeah. and, acculture, and acculturated into a new system. So, um, but I want to give an, uh, an example of a really positive, there's a, on my website, there's a, a 
a link to a, a YouTube. You'd have to guess, go to my Global Earth Repair Conference blog. And, and if you scroll down, you'll find some references to Indian water villages. These people, somebody in the village got the idea. If we, just like permaculture would say, maybe they're influenced by permaculture. How do we hold the water on the landscape? It's all running off. It's causing erosion. Our yields are poor. We have very little irrigation water. People are leaving the villages. And and so they figured out how to create a water retention landscape using swales, diversion channels, ponds, uh, just pretty much the same toolkit permaculture would use. And they greened up the village, improved their water situation, and crops are good. And people are coming, leaving the cities and coming back to the village. Yeah. yeah. And so they've reversed the flow, so we can do it if we could make the villages a good place to live. Yeah. Um. So at any rate, there's so the situation is bad, and so we're calling for a global earth repair conference because we want to figure out, uh, or we want to. Put together for the world to see the, um, the the very optimistic concept. We know how to do the world's restoration and do the climate stabilization and to sequester the carbon and to create water retentive landscapes and to get a world of abundance and increase biodiversity. And we can take a lot of ag- industrial agriculture land out of production because we'll increase food production at the small home scale so much that there will be less industrial agriculture and those lands can be restored back to more of natural habitats. Now, now I, I, I know like we have a lot of really positive inspirational people and such coming to the global earth repair conference. Um, but something's come up for me. I want to just kind of dwell still in the dark side for just a minute. And I want to know, and, and this is kind of like spontaneous, but, you know, as uh, an elder who has kind of been, I guess, fringe to mainstream society for, you know, the 50 years since you dedicated yourself to service to humanity, like, how do you psychologically deal with the current political administration in the U.S., like all the crazy, it seems like, backsliding, backsliding on environmental protections, on clean water, you know, increase of drilling, mining, extraction of natural resources. Like, like how do you or how would you suggest people kind of sit with that and remain as positive as you seem to? Well, it's uh, one has to cultivate equanimity, for one thing. Uh, and that's a really good thing to have these days, patience, equanimity. Well, actually, we, we just shouldn't have much patience. We need to get, get on with it. What is equ- what's equanimity? Equanimity means that... Um, you are going to remain stable in your core, even if no matter what's happening outside of you. As how do you remain? Uh, how can you be in the in the eye of the hurricane, so to speak, but still remain poised? Uh, and of course, you're you're better able to function and function and get better results if you're not all flustered, so to speak. 
uh, or in a panic. And of course, we should be panicking, but uh, but those of us who know that we should panic have to remain calm, <laughs> hmm. so to speak. Um, how do I cope with it? I I see the current political situation as a just a continuation of something that's been going on a long time rather than that there's been any great change or anything. Trump and his administration, uh, of course, are bad. But, you know, every single administration uh, for the last, uh, well, pretty much for the history of the of the country, there's been a few noteworthy ones that weren't, weren't so bad, you might say. But mm-hmm. basically, the, the U.S. has been controlled by by big financial and corporate powers and the the military industrial complex was first uttered by Eisenhower as he left the presidency as a warning to the American people. And of course, the military industrial complex has continued to consolidate their control. We now could call it a military industrial financial uh, uh, complex. But at any rate, they are firmly in control of the political situation at the top, both the Democrats and Republicans. So Tweedledee and Tweedledum, I can't get very excited about all their shenanigans. I am focused on, uh, and, and so I'm keeping an eye on it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's a groundswell growing. I was very pleased to see that Alexandra Octavia Cortez had an 81% approval rating across the United States, that's Republicans and Democrats, hmm. uh, for her for her promoting the Green New Deal and green jobs for people. And and that has hit a political nerve. There's a point here where the it isn't we I don't think we'll necessarily see a yellow vest movement in the United States, but at some point, if at all, you know, people are you know if they, yeah, I don't think that the current power structure is is they will they will probably stop at no ends to retain control. But I I'm hoping that that that. Uh, There'll be that political control won't be continue to be vested in the current uh, nest of crooks. Yeah, you know, I was listening to um, Alexandria Octavia Cortez uh, speak the other day, and I was like, "Wow, I could see her actually bringing permaculture into some of her speeches. Like, I could see her actually uttering permaculture on the floors of the House of Representatives." I was like, "That's I, you know." I want- I, I, I invited her right away, as soon as I knew of her, to the Global Earth Repair Conference because she's from the Bronx, and I can't imagine that her nature connections are have been really st- strong during her life. But she's, okay. you know, she's demonstrating the the right ideas anyway. But I'd love to get her to the Global Earth Repair Conference to get her much more trained up on what really needs to be done because she's got the right ideas, and the Global Earth Repair Conference would be just great for her. So I, if there's anybody out there, any green politicians listening to this, you should get yourself over to the Global Earth Repair Conference so you can learn how to, what's the program for Global Earth Repair, and then you can use that as a winning platform in your uh, political campaigns. I believe so. Yeah, nice. And and hopefully that can come to fruition. And I think your, uh, your attendance numbers would certainly blow up if you got... Uh, someone like Alexandria at the conference, although you have a lot of really awesome people lined up for the conference. Um, and, you know, I just want to say a note on your, your, your vision of this Indian village, right? 
Um, I actually visited villages like that just a year ago. We came back from India um, a year ago yesterday, and uh, I saw these amazing villages that had been restored over decades of water harvesting techniques and groundwater tables built up and food security um, created, you know, where they had one crop from the monsoons with water harvesting. They were able to grow two crops, which kept people fed and kept people from migrating. So, you know, what, what, what other inspirations do you have that really, like, what was the spark of inspiration that that gave you the idea to put this conference together and put all the energy that you have put um, into its creation? Well, the, I, the inspiration actually is, I'd say, at least 10 years old. I've been wanting to do this for quite some time. I keep wanting somebody else, waiting for somebody else to do it uh, so I wouldn't have to. But at one point I said, well, there's nobody, I better get on it. So I'm, I, it's been a long time inspiration to bring together uh, uh, sort of a, a think tank, you might say, a global think tank of, of how do we do global earth repair and, and how do we, uh, what are the methods in a sense, the information, but also how do we mobilize? That's one of the biggest things that could come out of the conference is we really need to not only figure out what to do, which a lot of, between the, everybody at the conference, we won't have all the answers by any means and we won't represent everywhere in the world but it's a very high-level group of people, and some of them are, are really, I would say, you know, there are world experts that have devoted their lives to studying this. I'm just one of them. And between all of us, we are going to have a lot of that information. But even more important, perhaps, is how do we mobilize the masses, so to speak? How do, we, how do, how do mass movements happen where people just start doing this? On their out of their own hands, and we see examples of this in Africa and Asia. And I think I will, uh, Yakuba and Burkina Faso, for instance. I we again, there's a list of those on my website. But the um, the I'm John D. Lou, who's one of our heroes and one of our guest keynote speakers who really is one of the world leaders in large-scale ecosystem restoration. And he said that his great hope is the, is the, um, the rural, the, poor, the populations of what we call, we used to call the third world, and then we called it the underdeveloped world. And I call it the non-overdeveloped world. <laughs> but the, <laughs> the two-thirds world, right? But the two-thirds world is a top term I use a lot, true. Yeah. So at any rate, that's where the two-thirds world is where he holds out his greatest hope. I think that we can do our own. We better get it together in the industrial nations, but we're going to have the hardest fall. So we're going to be picking up pieces, so to speak. Uh, but there'll be a lot of scrap around. Whereas in, in that... John D. Lu thinks that these people in the the two thirds world, a lot of them don't have the constraints we have in our country, yeah. and mass movements can really get going and can spread from village to village. And the next thing you know, there's two hundred thousand people doing the same tree planting or 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 row contouring or stone yeah, yeah. walls, etc. That we see these kind of things in Africa. And Africa and Asia seem to be the, the best. And it's interesting to note that of the indig 370 indigenous people in the world, it's like two out of three are in Asia. Mm. There's still, they're still um, and then of course, a big chunk of the rest is in Africa. Yeah, you know, I've got I've to second that from 
spending you know that time in India with the International Permaculture Conference. I mean, I left there after touring rural projects that involved you know hundreds of thousands, and in one case, even you know more than a million people you know, involved in creating by hand massive interconnected water harvesting systems and, you know, many other layers of regeneration and food security, I was like, man, I can't believe, like, that people can get together and work harmoniously, cooperatively, in tandem with each other. Now, there was a, you know, the fact is, in in the areas I visited some of these projects, okay, you know, they were all Hindu. They had all been there for a long time. They had Gandhi as uh, inspiration, who was still the spirit of Gandhi was still very much alive um, in people's consciousness there. And and I actually I actually felt sad coming back to the U.S. and feeling like the disjointed. Uh, nature of how just people move so often. Like you don't find a lot of places in America where everybody was born there and has lived there and feels like they'll die there and that they are there, you know? And so I don't know if those, you know, I, I, I hope, I don't know what the key is for that same level of collective um, vision and collective cooperative selfless work I don't know how that can, would blossom in our um, very self-absorbed society. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there there are examples, and there are many of them of people doing what you're saying here, Andrew, in in in, a, in the U.S. And so there, I it can happen. It, there are there is a lot of um, there is a lot of I guess I could use the term dead weight. There's a lot of uh, when I when I look at what percentage of people in the United States were really doing, you know, what we going to call honest work or real work that benefited society. It was it was, uh, you know, 30, 33 percent is being generous. Um, so but but I do see people here getting together and if we get the pe- the people together that want to do restoration, it's actually a very large number. What we need is – I heard this quote the other day. What we need is for everybody to fall in love with the earth. In a sense, what you're pointing out is that the rootlessness that this, uh, the, this society is promoting or this um, – the current paradigm rulers are promoting is rootless, rootlessness moving a lot. And, and as a result, people don't build up the strong ties with the land like you felt there in India, where you become part of the land. And that's still the case with the native, a lot, some of the tribal people I hang out with here. They still really, uh, they still feel their ancestry going back with the land here for, you know, countless generations, hundreds of generations or so since the last ice age, actually. And so they're really in, tied up with the land. And it's um, you might say if if you if you love the land, it's harder to hurt her. And and you're more likely to want to go out of your way to to uh, do earth repair not only for our own good, but just just to help the world around us. And we need to create more opportunities like that. I, 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 I hate to put it this way, but sometimes tongue-in-cheek I say that we'll really 
we'll really have some big changes in this country when unemployment hits 30, what hits 40, 50 percent. Hmm. In other words, the less employment there is, the more t- people will be doing things to take care of themselves. Gardening will will uh, could really grow, for instance. In Russia, in their, in their collapse of the Soviet Union, the amount of gardens in the country more or less doubled. And that's basically how they fed themselves through a very uh, sketchy situation uh, that could have been in, in, in our country, could have been a lot of starvation. And yeah, and so we're seeing that upsurge right here now, but we better get on it. Yeah, Mark Lakeman, um, he has this great piece that he talks about when he talks about how people think like, oh, we need to, in the U.S., reduce our consumption by like 99% or something like that to actually, you know, reach somewhat of a, you know, this this ridiculous amount of where people just think like reducing your consumption is this horror, right? And somehow that our quality of life will plunge. And he has this whole thing. He's like, oh, no, more potlucks, more time to garden, more time to play music, you know, like if everybody didn't have to work so much to consume at this level, hey, we could actually have a lot more fun, sort of. Yeah, I would say that. In fact, I didn't say that quote about my, all that youth, all that stuff I did in my youth, in my young uh, adulthood. Uh, we had a lot of fun. And, and, and I, I must say, I still have a fair amount of fun. But back in those days, <laughs> Life was really sweet and, and, uh, and, and, and having a lot of fun because we didn't have these jobs, like you say, we had a lot of time for each other and, and uh, it, life was good. Life was really good. The, I would say probably the less money I've had, the better life was. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting. You said, you, you know, when you're telling the story of your life, you said, and then I had a family and I realized I had to make more money and, you know, that's, of course, uh major developmental stage for a lot of people. Yeah, that's that's quite quite true. But I had a lot of families back in those days, a lot of friends. They were hippie families back in the land movement, and they were raising kids, and they did it. They raised kids successfully out there in the country in our lifestyle with very little money and growing our own gardens. And so it wasn't that, that as soon as everybody had kids, they had to move back to the city and get a job. That tended to happen a little bit more when the children reach teenagehood and the small rural town schools sometimes just weren't – they would convince the parents to move to uh, bigger schools and things. So there was was a certain amount of moving for the children, but it wasn't because it was impossible to do or anything. Well, the the societal image of the baby boomers is – a lot of baby boomers were back to the land and then they had kids and then the kids started growing up and then they kind of entered capitalist society and used uh-huh. all used all of the creativity of their young hippie free days to become very creative um, capitalists and kind of as a generation, like a lot of people kind of consider that I think you are probably you're an exception. There's many, many exceptions, but in a large part people think of the baby boomers as kind of selling out to consumerism mm-hmm, right. as their kids became got yuppie. older. Yeah, became yuppies, as we yeah. call in those days. And there certainly was a huge amount of that. But I would I would argue that, you know, even though, you know, our generation's done a huge amount of damage to the planet, but it wasn't necessarily the – and to some extent it was the individual's fault, but a lot of it was the top-down uh, – 
the diktats of of uh, of the military industrial financial complex that really you know I would point to them as the culprits more than like the actual baby boomers themselves in as much as any rate we can yeah. go down that rabbit hole but um well well yeah was I, I was the, sorry go ahead uh I had a the one other thing I would say is that the the back to the landers and the communi- communitarians that, that I was part of, a lot of them did go back into regular society. And you, as you said, they took their creative, uh, what they learned in those times, and they brought a lot more cooperation into some workplaces. They brought a lot more. Uh, the, the One thing our generation did was we created the organic agriculture movement be, yeah. and, and the environmental movement and the peace movement and the anti-nuclear movement and uh and personal health and medicinal herb you know there's we a huge amount of progress has been made because of the work of our generation there's been a lot of you know currents and counter currents but there we can point to a lot of things that happen in society i like to say that even though we the our communities may have failed most of them that we took though what we learned about living in community and and leavened or leavened the rest of society with it when we went out to society. So, in a sense, we could consider them some of them uh, double agents. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and and like I, I still don't know how in in the scope of history uh, the judgment of my generation, Generation X, will come down and how we'll be perceived. You know, after we've lived uh, our whole lives and such so you know i i i have a lot of inspiring people in your generation i don't really i don't want to dog your generation you know because um like you said there's a lot of really amazing things um that have come out that have created the fabric for a lot of the changes that are happening right now um do you have some specific outcomes that you would like to see from this conference uh, uh, quite a few, <laughs> but uh, on the one hand, I'm trying to have little expectations because this thing is really evolving as we speak. And but one of the latest, um, but let me give you a, a few, a little background. Um, so we have we're going to have a um, hundred plus, I'd say a hundred twenty-five or to 150 people that are going to be that are going to be what we call presenters. In other words. Their, their name is on a list somewhere that they're going to be do a presentation or be on a panel. But I know that also that a lot of the people signing up, I'm, I'm looking at their emails coming through, and I recognize some of them. And some of them I see at the end that they're with the Pierce County Conservation District or they're with the University of Hawaii or they're with Whitman College or whether. And so I say, hey, what are you up to? And I find out that we've got these incredible people coming that are, you know, paying their way to the, the participants. A lot of them are fully capable of being on that presenter list as well. So we're going to have a, a high-level conference of people, and we're trying to not only exchange information but synthesize our ideas as much as possible. And what one of someone the other day said a quote they said 
you don't have enough scientists coming. You're not you're sort of saying that we're not really a credible outfit because we needed more scientists. And we have a lot of scientists coming, I must say. Um, and we have what also is called citizen scientists. But what the world needs besides science these days, and this com- conference will have it in spades, is it also needs wisdom. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of indigenous people coming to pass on indigenous wisdom. It needs love. We need this is this is only going to be accomplished really if uh, through the heart in a way that humans have to be motivated through the heart to do this. Yeah. And we need common sense. Um, there's a lot of scientists in the world that are working for the wrong people. Um, I, I, in fact, if we did a survey and tried to really sort of snuff, sniff it out, what percentage of the, of the scientists of the world, those with, you know, they're practicing, um, how much, just as how many of them are working for the military industrial financial complex, so to speak, and earth destruction. And how many of them are working for really positive things that are helping the world and we could nitpick there for a long time but it would be an interesting it could be an interesting debate i, I would like to see someone tackle that yeah you, you know i'm yeah. i'm i'm surrounded by scientists because you know i work at the university and um i think that one of the issues is the identification of someone as a scientist because i mean we have the international panel on climate change, the IPCC that's put out, that's like this conglomeration, the world's climate scientists saying like, this is what's happening. We have this climate, we have this level of temperature that's risen. Here's the current effects. Here are the projected effects. I mean, this is like alarm bell, global alarm bell stuff going off. Yeah. But if people are scientists as a identity and they're not like also activists or also citizens or also solution makers i think that like science it has this you know it's it's put forth as this like objective you know we are objectively judging what is without you know adding our opinion to it and that's how we arrive at at a truth through experimentation and repeatable experiments and all that but i feel like that objectivity i, I feel like scientists should be they should be more involved in society um, than they are as opposed to being a separate kind of just experimental unit without really trying to shift the waves, like you said, like inspiration, love, wisdom. Like those things are the things that actually move people. People aren't – only a certain percent of the population are moved by a a report on climate change, for example. Right. Well – so we need we do need so we need science coupled with wisdom, love, and common sense. And so, uh, so we're we're that's what we're bringing together as a synthesis as, at the conference. Uh, there are a lot of conferences of scientists on the on global climate change, et cetera, and those are well and good. And but we're coming at this from a different angle of let's say what a United Nations panel would, would, would come at it from, or, um, or corporations. We're coming at this from the grassroots angle. We're having indigenous people and farmers and permaculturists and, uh, just a wide diversity of people that are actually involved in earth repair in some form or another. And so, uh, 
so we're coming at this from a real grassroots approach. And so that's, that's one of the things that's going to be different will, will influence the outcome. So one of the things I'd like to see come out of the conference, in, in a sense, is some sort of action plan. Like I said, how do we mobilize? We need uh, what do we need to do? It, we can't, in a sense, come up with a prescription that's blanket statement or anything. But uh, there'll probably be some kind of uh, statement out of the conference or something, mm-hmm. or some. We want a, a lot of action plans, as I say. We also. I uh, want to consider that everyone there is a teacher, everyone is a student. We all bring something to the table. We all have some special genius. And so we, we I just started talking with some people from, uh, uh, excuse me, here, I'm going to have to turn, <laughs> turn, turn this. You could take that call. We'll just wait. It's okay. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> um, that uh, we, we started working with an outfit called Network um, Weavers. Network Weavers, and they're they're really doing some cutting edge stuff on how we can use networking to really get results. So we're going we're they're going to be giving us advice. We're getting all these five hundred to six hundred people together at one place, and how do we we network together to achieve the most actions out of this that we come away with there's you know since a lot of, uh, more alliances happen you know we might say uh a lot of contacts get contacts get made and deals get made and and uh, solutions become uh, evident and people will go away with with a lot of uh follow-up there will be a lot of follow-up to this and balls will be set in motion that will be rolling for for decades. So that is um, that is part of the goal of this is to get as much action started as possible and have have this reverberate around the world as much as we can get it to. We're just one conference, but we hope, in a sense, to be a template for hundreds of conferences all around the world. Every country isn't like we want to be the conference for the world. We're just we're just getting this particular one kicked off. But we'd like to see uh, conferences like this happening in every region, every country, every state. Uh, the, the world needs people getting together around the the concept of earth repair to plan for their, you know, to really get going on their area. And and there are things like this happening, but we, we need a lot more of them. So that's what, and how, one of the, re, one, I'll just say one more thing on what outcome is we're going to have uh, a bunch, we, we expect to have a lot of live streaming of keynote talks and, and panels, and we're going to videotape a lot of the conference and during and after the conference, we'll be putting up a lot of content on the web. So people from all around the world can check in and say, well, I wonder, wonder what happened at that conference. Someone just mm-hmm. told me that they, that they had a lot of good information there. I'm going to go take a look. And that people around the world are going to look at the, uh, the uh, keynotes and look at the panels and listen in on these workshops. And there'll be a lot of different ways to plug in in a sense but at least there'll be a lot of ways a lot of information to be had and a lot of inspiration and that can go out 
through the internet. Uh, and so we hope that that will have some influence too. So what are some of the actual, like who are some of the awesome speakers you're having and, you know, give us a little taste of who and what's going to be going on. Well, there's, as I said, a lot of, uh, presenters, but John D. Lewis, I, I mentioned world expert on, on, on large scale ecosystem restoration. He's setting up ecosystem restoration camps. So that will be one focus. We've got Dr. Thomas J. Goreau, who is one of the world's most knowledgeable people on uh, ocean restoration, coral reef restoration, and uh, sequestering carbon on land. He, is, he, is, uh, he was a scientist working with the early United Nations uh, treaties and such. So he's, he brings a lot to the table. We've got two of the indigenous grandmothers coming, I'm happy to say. Um, grandmother Agnes Pilgrim and Grandmother Mona Palaka. Uh, from Oregon and Arizona, respectively. We've got Ilarion Merculia coming from the Aleutian Islands in Alaska, who is a a spokesperson for indigenous people on the international arena. And so so we have have Juan Gabriel Anasca Lopezco from, uh, from Peru coming, an elder from there. So we're bringing in some indigenous component. Um, there's a big amount of permaculture. So a lot of your listenership will be permaculturist. We have a, a very large contingent of permaculturists, including you, Andrew and myself. Uh, and it's, it will be a probably of any earth, you know, really, international restoration conference permaculture will have a bigger place at the table at this one than than any other one probably other than the actual permaculture convergences themselves those certainly uh, are going to be those were those are fantastic and you've been to at least several um we just heard from fungi perfecti yesterday uh, that they're sending some people to talk about their latest We've uh, Dr. Eric Matter is one of the Xerxes top people on on writing about native pollinators and restoring native pollinator habitat. Uh, Joanne Camp is has been leading remineralize the earth for decades now, and she's reporting on on the how remineralization can be you know the world wide scale and overview of remineralization for the planet. Uh, Alfredo Quarto is doing mangrove restoration in Africa and Asia and keeping track of mangrove restoration. So we have a lot of people coming from the Salish Sea. They're working on Salish Sea restoration. There's 34 tracks last time I counted, but I'm going to consolidate them so it doesn't quite sound quite so daunting. But we'll probably get down to 25, 20 to 25 really serious uh, tracks. So there'll be multiple things happening at the yeah, conference. Sounds like the only problem is you're, you're only, I, I'm only going to be able to see like a tiny fraction of all the things I would like to because you can only be at one place at a time. But sounds like if you're uh, recording it, then people can watch the things that they missed later. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, what about, um, facilitating discussion, communication, that sort of thing. Is there some element to that? Uh, 
expand on that? Well, like, I don't know if you have like panels or discussion groups or things where that are like more participatory. Oh, lots of those. I guess I sidetracked there. But with the we're doing a lot of panels and we're doing a lot of discussion groups and probably what we might call working groups so that many voices can be at the table. And that's one of the reasons for a lot of smaller groups. Instead, some people say, well, the bigger the group, the better it is. No, in my viewpoint, the smaller the group, the better it is, because the more people get to talk and share and Mm -hmm. contribute. So we're going to break up into a lot of, you know, there'll be different breakout sessions, but. As a general rule, there's going to be a lot of variety so that we can get people into small groups so a lot of voices can get heard. So hence, panels and uh, discussion groups will be really an important part of the uh, whole event. Nice. How about music and dancing? Any of that? Oh, yeah. Well, I just had a meeting with the music dance department the other day. (laughs) I'll lead a few dances. I must and then uh, we have people that are doing a lot of songs, you know, leading songs, uh, group songs. Well, not a lot. I would say that's one component. We're going to have ceremony and and uh, and 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 drumming and and songs by the indigenous people. We're going to have a a song, a sort of an acoustic stage in the large tea area. And there'll probably be a concert on Saturday evening, and uh, there'll be just music here and there, because how could you have a good Earth Repair Conference without some music? And we better have some drums in the background going, too. If you were, if you were, it's interesting that in, if Africa is a great example of people that sing a lot. They sing when they're together. They sing while they work. They sing as a group while they work. And we we better have some song and uh, at this thing and music as well. So, how can people get more involved? Can people volunteer? How do they find you? What are the dates? When are the? What are the sort of like? Is there an early bird special? Give us the details for anybody who is just itching now to go and sign right up or volunteer. Okay. Go to you just have to type in Global Earth Repair Conference and we'll pop up at the top of the list. But uh, it's a uh, www.earthrepair.friendsofthetrees.net. Got to have that net on the end. So that's the, that's the website, but it's pretty easy to find us. And we have a website just chock-a-block full of information. It'll take you a couple hours to read everything on that. Uh, you can see a long list of the presenters. There's a registration button so people can sign up. We have rooms available. There's camp available there'll be carpools available and you you can just get pretty much everything you need to know from there and there's contact information if you need to know more there's a forms to fill out for presenters forms for volunteers for work traders we're still taking we we still need quite a bit a few more work traders for coordinators we have a few coordinator positions open and there's also a form in case they would like to financially sponsor this. We're, we're running off by donation to keep it, um, keep it affordable. Yeah. Are we still there? Yeah, I'm starting to lose you a little okay. bit here. We'd love to, you know, we're looking for people, for people that want to go out and do earth repair. That's what this conference is for, is for people that are either doing it and want to devote their life to it. We need more people devoting their lives to the planet. It may sound cheesy, but the world needs us. 
Nice. All right. Well, Skeeter, thank you so much for talking to me. And uh, let's hope that this can help to charge, uh, stimulate some success and that we can all get together and have a great and uh, amazing and learning experience at the Global. And what are the dates? May 3rd, 4th, and 5th up here in Port Townsend, Washington. May 3rd through 5th, Port Townsend, Washington. All right, Skeeter, it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Good luck to all the listeners out there and love the earth. And oh, I must part with a quick song. Uh, We can heal this planet Earth. I know we can. I'm sure we can. Wah, 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 wah. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. Okay. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. See you. Take care. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.